This is hell. Caught me in mid-coffee pour there right at the beginning. Putting people before profits, which turns out to be a horrible business model. This is hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, podcast, live streaming host, Chuck Mertz producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. How's your week going so far, Alex? It's great. Eating beans every day. <laughs> Are you really? Uh, no, but I'm getting pretty close to it. <laughs> we uh, did an inventory of our fridge last night, our freezer, and realized that we have so much seafood from some purchase several months ago that uh, I believe we'll be having mussels, then shrimp, then salmon, and then tuna for dinner for the next four nights. Pandemic just really doesn't get you in the mood to eat seafood, does it? No, it does not, especially when you find a bag of shrimp where it has been in the shrimp for, or in the fridge freezer for so long that you don't see any shrimp in the bag. You just see this big block of ice. You know there's shrimp in there because it's an unopened bag, but it's... it's... Yeah, I got uh, I got that same old shrimp bag in my freezer, too. <laughs> Today, you may have heard that last week, a $2 trillion novel coronavirus 2019 relief bill passed the House and Senate after some debate over its content. The Democratic Party-controlled House offered their idea of how to help out those suffering from COVID-19, and the Republican Senate added their option as well. We'll look deep into the final unanimously agreed-upon package and find out what our guest argues is a lack of funding, unnecessary giveaways, weak oversight when it comes to a lot of the money and promises unfulfilled, which allows the nation's 1% of the 1% to line their pockets like they did with the 2017 tax cuts, instead of trickling their riches down to us wretches below. Returning to This Is Hell this week is economist Eileen Applebaum, co-author of the Center for Economic Policy and Research Report, the U.S. response to COVID-19, what's in federal legislation and what's not but still needed, which she co-wrote with Sean Fremstad. Eileen is co-director at CEPR, a fellow at Rutgers University Center for Women and Work, and visiting professor at the University of Leicester in the UK. This will be Eileen's third appearance on This Is Hell. Most recently, Eileen, Eileen was on last April when we talked with her and her co-author, Rosemary Batt, about their report, ironically, Private Equity Pillage, Grocery Stores and Workers at Risk. Eileen first appeared on our show way back in September of 2014 to discuss her and Rosemary's award-winning book, Private Equity at Work. You can follow Eileen on Twitter at Eileen Applebaum. That's A-P-P-E-L-B-A-U-M. And you can find out more about CEPR at CEPR.net. Alex, what's this week's question from hell for our listening audience? This week's question from hell is, uh, what you wiping down? What you wiping down? And uh, I have to read these, so uh, (laughs) keep it semi-clean here, just so I don't feel gross. I don't care about the radio. Uh, And the winner, uh, all replies will get read on air this week. And Chuck's fave wins five TIH subvertising stickers that I will pre-wipe for you. So that is, uh, what you wiping down? What are you wiping down? The winner again, five, gets five. This is Hell subvertising stickers, so you too can subvert outdoor advertising with the words, this is hell. As we are all living in hell right now, what better time to remind others that, yes, this is hell. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. You can direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio, or you can email it to us, chuck at thisishell.com, alex at thisishell.com. I also have some of your answers to this week's question from hell following our guest. Again, this week's question from hell is, what are you wiping down? What are you wiping down? And our favorite wins five This Is Hell subvertising stickers. This is not the media. This is hell. I have an update on something I mentioned in yesterday's monologue. You may remember me talking about an opinion column in Friday's New York Times by the author of The Power Worshippers Inside the Dangerous Rise of Religious Nationalism. Catherine Stewart is the author, and Stewart was very highly critical of evangelicals and their impact they had on President Trump's policymaking regarding the outbreak of the coronavirus pandemic. In the column, Stewart mentions Rodney Howard Brown of the River at Tampa Bay Church in Florida, who mocked people concerned about the disease as pansies and insisted he would only shutter the doors to his packed church when the rapture is taking place. Yesterday, the Tampa Bay Times reported megachurch pastor Rodney Howard Brown and the river at Tampa Bay Church had been warned. 
The Hillsborough County Sheriff's Office received an anonymous tip, maybe they were reading the New York Times, that the pastor planned to hold services Sunday in violation of county orders, asking residents to stay home and limit gatherings to slow the coronavirus. Sheriff's officials said they warned church lawyers on Friday and Sunday about the, quote, dangerous environment they were creating for their members and the community. But Howard Brown, the self-proclaimed Holy Ghost bartender and COVID-19 conspiracy theorist, ignored those warnings. He led or held two large services on Sunday, deputies said, and even bust people into the church. The church live-streamed the morning main event service on its Facebook page. Yeah, that's what they call their religious service, the main event, showing congregants shoulder-to-shoulder while the church band played. Then they uh, actually uh, quote the sheriff, um, a guy by the name of Chronister. He's then quoted saying, because of the reckless disregard of public safety and after repeated requests and warnings, I worked with our state attorney, Andrew Warren, to obtain a warrant for unlawful assembly and violation of public health emergency rules, both of which are second-degree misdemeanors. Our goal here is not to stop anyone from worshiping, but the safety and well-being of our community must always come first. Okay, so Howard Brown has to drag God into this. Real nice. Then the police have to get involved. They're called. So you got God, the police, and someone who has total disregard for his fellow human beings' health and safety. And all of this is in Florida. If you want to know how the United States has reacted to a global pandemic, do you really need to look farther than an evangelical preacher in Florida packing in followers into his theater or main event or whatever his religious building is called, bussing them in in defiance of all health and safety protocols and protections, then flaunting, flaunting all those rules online, bragging about it, ending up in jail and making bail in a half an hour. Now that's an American response to a pandemic. In another follow-up, remember last week when we were mentioning how residents here in Chicago were trying to get in on the communal singing while sheltering in place craze. There apparently had been some poll somewhere. I know, I never saw it. And the outcome of this elusive poll was that there would be a Chicago-wide sing-along of the dreadful Bon Jovi song, Living on a Prayer. Why this was going to be imposed on us Chicago-wide when the poll seemed to originate from one apartment building in East Rogers Park on the very far north side of Chicago is uncertain. If they wanted to do it in their neighborhood and piss off their neighbors, fine, but why do you have to get the entire city angry at each other for singing such a horrible song? A couple days later, people who live in high-rises downtown decided they would get in on the imposing your musical taste on all your neighbors' fun by singing a better song than Living on a Prayer. And at least one that most people know the lyrics, Queens, we are the champions, although the sentiment may be displaced and misplaced. We really haven't championed over anything. In fact, the reigning champ right now wearing the belt seems to be COVID-19, so I'm not certain that was the best choice musically either. Then I heard that in the South Loop, just south of downtown, they were not only singing We Are the Champions, but another song that, unlike Living on a Prayer, it's a song that everyone knows the words they were singing. They were singing Bill Withers' Lean On Me. Okay, maybe we don't know all the words, but more than freaking Living on a Prayer. Living on a Prayer also has the very pro-Trump lyric, we're halfway there. We're not close to being halfway done with COVID-19, and the nerve to use a song that gives people such false hope is simply cruel in a Trumpian way. In the South Loop, they were also singing Gloria Gaynor's and Not Grateful Dead's. Did you hear me, Rogers Park? I will survive. Lean on me and I will survive. Now, those make sense, but living on a prayer and we are the champions, we haven't beaten anything yet, and we are definitely not close to being halfway there. President Trump has been insisting that the states and their governors should show some appreciation for everything he has done, that we should all thank him for supplying the public with medical care in the face of a rampaging plague that is tearing through the country, countryside just like fire in the prairie. It reminded me of all those other times in U.S. history that presidents complained they were not being appreciated enough publicly, demanding that they be thanked by all of us lowly citizens. I remember from history books, the long lines of American citizens lining up following the Civil War to kiss the ring of Abraham Lincoln, and how he lost his voice saying, you're welcome, thousands of times. I remember reading his throat was so sore he couldn't enjoy his next evening out at the theater. And now it's only not only that we have to show appreciation toward President Trump for doing his job of keeping us alive, 
by making certain we have the health care system necessary to protect us from a pandemic. We not only have to show appreciation for all Trump's failures so far, or else he will take his ventilators and go home. But now we're being told we should have had more gratitude for what we had before the virus. When we get back to normal, we shouldn't take it for granted and we should again appreciate that old new normal. But what caused the virus in the first place was the old new normal, the normal that we are supposed to all want to get back to, the normal that this time we should be a little more grateful for and not take for granted. That new normal is the reason that this new abnormal happened. If we go back and continue with the same unsustainable economic model of constant growth, which drives global deforestation that releases pathogens like the one that led to the coronavirus and COVID-19 pandemic, all spread quickly by globalization that insists we have to have access to what used to be seasonal produce all year long from anywhere in the world, a globalization that thrives on tourism and travel, which further spreads diseases that are no longer trapped deep in the forest. If we go back to that time we are now supposed to show gratitude toward for taking for granted, then you better start stocking up on N95s, latex gloves, toilet paper, and whatever else you will need for the next pandemic because the old new normal caused this plague that traps us indoors. And if you go back, we're signing a suicide note. There is no again anymore. We can't go back to doing the same things that caused the virus in the first place. Believe it or not, there are bigger challenges than COVID-19. What we are doing right now is very likely nothing more than a trial run for how humanity will react to climate change. This is preseason. This is spring training for climate change. And so far, the scouting reports say that exhibition season is not going well. There's a lot of hoarding, a lot of greed, a lack of concern for others within your community, class divisions that lead the poor to suffer while the rich cash in on the disaster and count their money in far-off hideaways where they can keep themselves very far from the rest of us rabble, rabble who await the, their next profit-making scheme of suffering. Oh, I can't wait till they come back. This does not bode well for how we will react in the face of the next inevitable worldwide catastrophe. Now we're thanking the multinationals that are behind deforestation for donating N95 masks, erasing their role in causing the virus in the first place. McDonald's donated 400,000 masks, and we're now all supposed to cover our faces from the stench of the hypocrisy that emanates from Mickey D's. Remember how customers weren't going to British Petroleum BP following the Deepwater Horizon disaster? Sunday I saw lines and lines of cars waiting at the McDonald's drive through so let's not show gratitude for the past that caused the virus. Let's not be appreciative to those who do not act in the public's best interest, but in their own or of their own ideologies. Let's not go back to the normal of self-destruction, or we can, but be prepared to hear every day someone telling you, someone insisting, this is hell coming up. The COVID-19 relief bill has lots of problems. Maybe that's why they are already working on another one. Alex will have some of your answers to this week's question from hell, which is, what are you wiping down? What are you wiping down? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question wins five This Is Hell advertising stickers so you too can subvert outdoor advertising with the words, this is hell. Live from the nightmare of want, this is hell. The $2 trillion Coronavirus Aid, Relief, and Economic Security Act, which passed last week, was already the third COVID-19 aid package passed, and a fourth is already being worked on, which makes sense, or it will after you hear our guest. Returning to This is Hell to explain to us the shortcomings, missed opportunities, and still potential possibilities when it comes to addressing our economy, under the pandemic, economist Eileen Applebaum is co-author of the Center for Economic Policy and Research Report, The U.S. Response to COVID-19, What's in Federal federal Legislation and What's Not But Still Needed, which she co-wrote with Sean Fremstead. Welcome back to This Is Hell, Eileen. Thank you very much for having me. Glad to be here. You can follow Eileen on Twitter at Eileen Applebaum, and you can find out more about CEPR at CEPR.net. When it comes to the when it comes to paid family and medical leave in the stimulus package, as your report points out, there will be up to 12 weeks of paid leave for employees who are unable to work due to a need for leave or care for their child because the school or daycare has been closed or the child care provider is unavailable due to a public health emergency. You and your co-author do not think this benefit should end on December 31st, 2020 at the end of this calendar year, as the stimulus bill states. 
Why is it important now to extend a deadline of a benefit that may not be needed in 2021, next year after the funding runs out on December 31st? Why not make this decision later as we get closer to the deadline? Well, I have to tell you that getting uh, paid sick leave and paid family and medical leave for workers uh, nationally and in the States has been part of my life's work. I headed the Center for Women and Work at Rutgers when we won uh, paid family leave in New Jersey, a state that had a paid medical leave since the 1940s. Uh, so uh, I've been on this for a very long time. It's something that people have needed desperately for decades, if not longer. It's something we should already have. Uh, and uh, Having an emergency version of it, we do have an emergency version of paid sick days. You, if you're a full-time worker, you're eligible for up to 80 hours or two weeks of paid sick days. Uh, Part-time workers get that prorated. But on the paid uh, family and medical leave, I'm sorry to say that you gave the bill even more credit than it deserves. Not only does it sunset at the end of this year, when in fact we need permanent uh, paid family and medical leave, but it doesn't actually give you paid family and medical leave. There is paid leave uh, for the situation in which your child's school has closed. This is a young child, cannot be left alone at home, and so you must stay home with them. You get 12 weeks of leave, 10 of which are paid, the first two unpaid, and the following 10 are paid. But if you get COVID-19 yourself, think of that situation. You have the COVID-19. You have two weeks of paid sick days, and that's the end of it. We do not have paid medical leave. We do not have even that 12 weeks of paid medical leave for a person who themselves has the COVID-19. Or you have elderly parents who have it, and you need to care for them, or a spouse or a child, uh, or, or, or just a close friend, somebody who needs you to care for them. That would be the family leave piece of it, and we do not have that either. So uh, this bill is desperately short uh, when it comes to providing people with income when they must uh, stay home either because they are sick themselves or because they are caring for a seriously ill family member or close friend. So uh, it, it, it just doesn't fill the bill. So you have been working on paid family and medical leave for, as you were just saying, for a very long time. Uh, and there is a front page story in the New York Times today about concerns over potential new rules that the Trump administration puts in place that may lead to possibly more oppressive laws that are imposed on the American people. Is there also the opportunity, do you see an opportunity at this time to bring about things that you've been working on your entire life, things like paid family and medical leave, or do you think that these, this is not a chance for any kind of long-term opportunity like that? This is all just temporary, and it's not going to lead to any long withstanding uh, process. So uh, even before the pandemic struck, this past December, uh, groups and groups and groups that have been working in the states, uh, working at national uh, organizations like mine, uh, uh, have, have been working on this. And we do have uh, several states now uh, that have passed uh, paid family and medical leave, many more that have paid sick days laws, either statewide or in cities. But what we did in December is we launched a campaign called Paid Leave for All with the idea that by 2021, we wanted to see a national uh, a national law that provided uh, these kinds of programs. It shouldn't, it shouldn't be an accident of where you work uh, that gets you paid leave when you're sick and you need it. Uh, so this, this, this has been in the works for a long time. We launched a national campaign in December, and we are hard, hard, hard at work on it. Uh, there's lots of support for it in Congress, uh, in the House and in the Senate. And uh, we were optimistic that we would be able to move this issue, get it to be a, on the national uh, uh, radar and so on. Uh, I will say that one of the things about this pandemic is it's gotten lots of people to really understand that we need paid sick days and paid family and medical leave, especially among the people who have office jobs, who are college educated, uh, all those people who are working from home right now and uh, not losing a paycheck many of them already have 
from their employers, paid sick days, short-term disability, uh, the ability to take uh, time off uh, under the old FMLA, which does not give you any money, but your employer can, of course, pay for it. And so I think there are a lot of people uh, among your listeners probably, who were not aware until this happened that people who work in restaurants, people who work in retail shops, people who uh, drive trucks and deliver that last mile delivery for Amazon, the Amazon Prime workers, the Walmart workers, that these workers do not have a paid sick day, much less a paid family leave day. Uh, and so they are really uh, desperate. And uh, I, I think that this was sort of hidden. And uh, one of the things the pandemic has done is it has highlighted this. It has made it really, really clear that we have lots of people, uh, people who we've looked down on in the past, uh, who we said, oh, those jobs are unskilled. We now find out that these are essential workers. You can't go to the grocery store if nobody's stocking the shelves and nobody's manning the cash registers. Uh, all of the things that you that you do routinely, it turns out, require workers making less than $15 an hour in most instances without health benefits, without paid sick days, without paid family and medical leave. These are the workers who are the backbone of this economy, and it's now clear. So I think in terms of making this an issue that's on the national radar screen, uh, the pandemic has unfortunately, for all the wrong reasons, uh, made this abundantly clear. Why does capitalism reveal its shortcomings when a disaster hits? This wasn't even one of my questions that I had written down. It was just something I was thinking about <laughs> when you're talking. Why does capitalism reveal its shortcomings when a disaster hits? I think that most of us manage to look away and, and not to see the disaster that is brewing. So uh, as you pointed out, uh, before you introduce me, uh, we've had these inequalities. We've had massive inequalities uh, in our economy. When when the president says, isn't it great, uh, you know, the unemployment rate is so low before this pandemic, he's failed to point out that 44% of workers are working in jobs that don't pay a living wage. So, uh, we yes, we created lots of jobs, but we also created uh, an army of the working poor. And uh, more educated people, people in more secure jobs tend to look at that and say, well, it's their fault. You know, they should have just gotten an education like I did. Well, this is just not true. This is just not true. And it, at the moment, we're beginning to see college educated workers now beginning to lose their jobs. So perhaps this will uh, enlighten people somewhat. But I do think that what happens in a crisis is that you can't look away. You can't say, I'm okay, and if they did just like I did, they would be okay also. Getting a college degree does not overcome the fact that 44% of the jobs in this country are low-wage jobs. Uh, so uh, it's a question of how do we create an economy that, in fact, uh, shares the productivity growth, shares the, 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 all the positive things about our economy, shares them widely with the people who actually produce them. And I do think that in a crisis like this, we can see who are the essential workers uh, who are the people, the child care workers that have to take care of the kids, of the doctors and nurses and other health care workers on the front lines, uh, uh, you know, of, of addressing the pandemic. Uh, so we suddenly see that workers who we, we, we didn't uh, bother to notice before uh, are playing a really important role in our economy and need to be rewarded for it. the contribution they make. They need to be rewarded fairly. Nobody who works full time should be lacking a living wage, health care, paid fit, paid sick days, uh, you know, paid, paid family and medical leave, and all of the other things that higher paid workers just take for granted. Uh, the stimulus states that paid family and medical, when it comes to paid family and medical leave, the Department of Labor may exempt businesses with fewer than 50 employees. The OMB, the Office of Management and Budget, can exclude any or even all executive branch federal employees. You would like to see both those exemptions disappear, but isn't the exemption Absolutely. isn't the exemption though for small businesses, businesses with under 50 employees? simply that those companies may not be able to afford that kind of paid leave, that it might put them out of business? Isn't this just a way to help protect small business, which we're always told is the backbone of the American economy? So in this particular case, during the pandemic, the federal government is going to pay 
all of those leaves. So there's no excuse. It's not, it's not financial. Um, and, and I will say this. Paid sick days ought to be a part of a standard employment relationship just the way a minimum wage of $15 an hour should be part of a standard employment relationship. If you can't pay your workers $15 an hour and you can't um, uh, have health, uh, uh, paid sick days for them, we have to really ask, what is the value of your business? What are you contributing? I understand the problem is that no single employer can do that because they will be then undercut by bad employers who don't do that. Uh, but if we had a national law that said the minimum wage is $15 an hour, paid sick days, every employer has to be willing to provide 10 of them, then you don't have anybody out there who can undercut you. And uh, all small businesses should be able to do that. We have never said that businesses should pay for paid family and medical leave because that, in fact, is expensive. That, in fact, uh, will have uh, disparate effects. If you're a hospital with lots of young uh, women of childbearing age among your nurses, your aides, and your technicians, you could be bankrupted if you had to pay your own paid family and medical leave. Uh, but if we, and you're a steel mill, you have hardly any women of childbearing age, uh, makes no difference to you. So uh, we don't want that kind of disparity, and we don't want to put businesses under by making them pay for this. That's why we need, and the states that have it have already done it, you need a statewide or a nationwide program because across all workers and across all employers, very few people are having babies or having heart attacks or having strokes. It's a very small percentage of the workforce that faces those kinds of crises. So if we have a national paid leave program, uh, paid family and medical leave program, we can easily afford it. Employers can easily afford it. Uh, split between employers and employees, we're talking about 2% of payroll. For, for employers and employees to contribute to something that will pay you uh, your full wages uh, if you uh, need them for paid family or medical leave or close to full wages. So uh, it, it's a no-brainer to do it as a national program. We're not asking individual employers uh, to, to be doing that. But for the pandemic, the government has recognized it. I don't know about the government. The House Democrats have recognized that this is an issue. And so the, uh, the, there is a program now where uh, an employer pays out the, uh, the paid sick days or the paid family or medical leave, if we had it, the, the, for the child care purposes, the paid leave, uh, and collects that money from the government. And in fact, they can make an estimate of what they may need and collect that money up front to be able to use it to pay for the leaves of their employees. Uh, so um, it's a no-brainer for the small ones to be able to do it. Uh, OMB, this is like ridiculous. This means that uh, uh, they can simply make a decision that federal workers don't get this. And so I don't know what happens in that case. You get sick, your family member gets sick. Uh, and the other thing which you didn't mention is that this only covers uh, employers with 500 or fewer employees. So the big box stores, the Starbucks, the Walmarts, the Targets, the, the Whole Foods, the Dunkin' Donuts, I could go on with the list, they're exempt. They don't have to provide these paid sick days uh, to their employees. There's no requirement. That's and the thing that... Yeah, go on. No, go ahead. Go ahead. I was interrupting. Go ahead. I was going to say the thing. The thing that is that that to me is the killer in all of this is so we exempt them. We exempt these big box stores. We count all the employees in their firm, not the number that are at your local Starbucks, which maybe has twenty employees. Okay, not not that Starbucks, but the whole Starbucks company is exempt because they've got thousands of employees. But now, when it comes to loans to small business, forgivable loans, by the way, I'll talk about that in a minute, but loans to small business that they may not ever have to pay back, uh, now we go by the size of the establishment. So your local Starbucks, your local Target, your local Walmart, they're all eligible for a loan uh, from the government that, in fact, if they meet certain conditions, they will never have to pay back. But on the other hand, they're exempt because they're part of a huge firm from uh, having to give paid uh, paid sick days. This, 
I mean, this makes no sense. This is, you know, you're giving them everything. No, you don't have to pay your workers uh, for their paid sick days. But yes, you're going to be eligible for government uh, loans. That seems so weird to me. So, and as you were pointing out, the 500 employee thing, employees with 500 or more employees should not be excluded from the requirement to provide paid sick time leave. That's what you argue. I don't under, right. I don't really understand this logic, Eileen. So is this any more, and, and let's talk about government employees not being covered as well. Is this any more than playing politics by the Republican Party that is anti-government worker and that is pro chain big box stores sure that's that i mean we never can know exactly what happened that's true but it sure as heck looks like the lobbyists for the big chain stores have done a great job of uh, protecting their members shall we say uh, and they give lots of money to uh, well to, to politicians in general i mean we we should recognize that there are plenty of corporate democrats as well but uh, they give their money to the uh uh, people running for Congress or in Congress that they view as sympathetic to their aims, which is to pay workers as little as possible and make as much money as they can. You also point toward unemployment insurance, and you write that uh, unemployment insurance benefits should be either disregarded or treated as earned income in means-tested program, including SSI and SNAP. This means that the unemployment insurance that is going to be provided by the stimulus package is actually going to be used as a penalty towards those people who are getting SSI, who are getting SNAP, those people who are the most vulnerable within our economy, That's are right. those who are dependent upon SSI and SNAP, are they going to be not only penalized for getting unemployment, but is this typical within the way that SSI and SNAP recipients exist in general? Yeah. Are they always penalized for getting unemployment insurance? Because that would seem like that doesn't help them then in any way to get to a better state out of poverty. Well, uh, unemployment insurance accounts as income. And uh, so any program... Uh, other that they did exempt the Medicaid and the CHIP program for kids, but any other program that uh, relies on your income level for the level of benefits you get, uh, if you get unemployment insurance, it does count against you. I think on on uh, balance, uh, you will be better off getting the unemployment insurance than giving it up. Especially, I will tell you, we can talk about the unemployment insurance in a, in a minute. The, the House Democrats kept a sweetener in there for workers that uh, almost scuttled the bill in the Senate. Uh, but that, uh, in any event, we have something really good. We have a couple of really good things in this in this bill. Uh, but uh, it's not just the SSI. If you think about it, all of the people who get their insurance on the Obamacare exchange, which may be your listeners or their children, uh, certainly I have members of my family who get their insurance through the Obamacare exchange. And uh, if they become unemployed and collect unemployment insurance, their incomes will go up this year and their subsidies will go down. So uh, lots of people will be affected by that. And that just doesn't seem to make sense. But that is not a reason not to get the unemployment insurance, trust me, uh, because there are two uh, really great things, that, well, maybe three really great things about unemployment insurance. First, if you're in a job where you qualify for unemployment insurance and you are let go either because your place of work shut down or because there was not enough work, uh, you are eligible for unemployment insurance in your home state, whatever it would have been. Plus, you're going to get an additional $600 a week. Uh, and uh, if unemployment insurance usually runs in states for about 26 weeks, there's an additional 13 weeks added on to that. So you will be able to claim unemployment insurance for up to 39 weeks should you need it between now and the end of the year. Uh, and you will get an additional $600 a week. And as some in the Senate pointed out, some people have wages that are so low that their unemployment insurance plus the $600 a week is going to be more than they made while they were working. Now, nobody should hope to become unemployed uh, in order to get that, that little bit of uh, extra pay because you want to be attached to your workplace. Nobody knows what's going to happen after the pandemic passes. If you're attached to your workplace, you have a much better chance of having a job when this is all over than if you were unemployed. So yes, 
Do not do not leave your job in order to get a, a little boost to your income from unemployment insurance. But what the House Democrats made sure of is that if you are unemployed, your unemployment insurance is going to be enough for you and your children, uh, to, if, if you have children at home, to live on. And that is as it should be. Now, let's suppose that you are a gig economy worker. Let's suppose that you are self-employed. Let's suppose that you are in any of the very many categories in which you do not qualify for unemployment insurance because you don't have an employer. There is a special pandemic unemployment assistance fund that the federal government is setting up. It, it, it will run through each of the 50 states, which has its, each state has its own way of doing unemployment insurance. So you'll have to watch the website for your own state's unemployment insurance for when this um, pandemic unemployment assistance goes up. But in this case, uh, you will be eligible for unemployment insurance, an amount that, that your state would have uh, given, plus the 600 a week. So uh, you are going to also be able to qualify for income if, you're, uh, if you have no business because of the pandemic uh, during this period. Uh, and I think that that's, that's just really a wonderful thing uh, that's in this bill, that people whose livelihood has been undermined by the pandemic will be eligible for regular unemployment insurance plus $600 a week for up to 39 weeks, and those who would never have been eligible uh, because they don't have an employer will now be eligible. Uh, so uh, this, I think, is all to the, all to the good, and, uh, and, and uh, you just have to thank uh, those Democrats in the House who fought for this uh, to the very end and managed to keep it in. As I say, there were four Republican senators who said, oh, we're giving people too much money. Those low-wage people don't deserve to be able to live. Uh, and uh, Bernie Sanders said, if they try to take that out, I'm going to hold up the entire bill. And so he called their bluff, and it passed. And uh, so we have that in the bill. Uh, there are a few other good things in the bill, if I can just say. We have really increased the amount of food that's going to be available uh, for those who uh, require it for food security. Getting it out to people is a bit of a challenge, but kids who require, who depended on school breakfast and lunch for their main nourishment, that is available. Uh, those who required, uh, uh, went to, through the WIC program, uh, pregnant and nursing mothers, getting food for themselves and their children, uh, even food banks. There's increased money for food banks to get food supplies, uh, and so uh, that that's uh, another one of the good things that is uh, that is in the bill. Uh, so, so there are some really good things that we managed to get in there for people. Uh, you know, uh, we we haven't taken care of everybody not being able to be evicted, but if your landlord has a mortgage themselves that has any kind of government backing. Uh, or if you are living in housing that has anything to do with HUD, uh, or if you are homeless, there's extra money to get you shelter. Uh, but but they can't evict in those cases. Uh, so uh, you know so 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 those are just some of the good things that that are actually in it. The um, the other really really bad thing, really bad. Oh my God, is a half a trillion, almost 500 billion slush fund of money to be given out to companies with between 500 and 10,000 employees. So this is this, this is being given out with no oversight. There was a fig leaf of oversight. A, a an inspector general was written into the bill whose main uh, power, no subpoena power, no enforcement power, whose main power would be to be able to write a report at the end saying whether the government gave out this money in a way that was fair and transparent or whether they gave it out to their cronies uh, in the worst of crony capitalism and a five-person uh, commission of uh, uh, people in Congress to oversee it also with no subpoena or enforcement powers. And the president didn't, I mean, it's, it was already very clear that this money was going to be given out by Treasury Secretary Mnuchin and Donald Trump to whoever they felt like giving it to. There's really almost no oversight as to where this money goes to begin with. And now 
the president in his signing statement, he wanted it to be blatant. He wants every every business that gets that money to know that they got it because he said they should get it. And so in his signing statement, he said, I'm not going to be bound by an inspector general or commission. We're not having those. I'm making I'm the I'm the oversight. Mnuchin's giving out the money and I'm the oversight. Well, anybody who has seen this uh, president in action knows that uh, where where that is likely to, to lead. And uh, being in Chicago, your your listeners may not know uh, the backstory on Treasury Secretary Mnuchin, but he was the head of One West Bank, a California uh, bank uh, banking system that. Uh, foreclosed on more old people than all the other banks put together. I mean, you want to talk about doing miserable, miserable things. His bank almost closed on a very elderly woman of over 73 cents. Because if you're in a reverse mortgage, you do still have to pay for the homeowner's insurance and other charges. Uh, And she made out the check and missed the 73 cents. And if the LA Times hadn't made a cause celeb out of that, she would have been evicted. So that's that's Mnuchin, just to give you a little taste of who it is that's giving out this money with no oversight. Uh, one thing that the, that the Dems did get into it is the money cannot be used uh, for any of the president's properties, any of his children's properties, any of the vice president's properties, the properties of any member of Congress or the uh, executives of any of the federal agencies. So at least they can't directly put money in their own pockets. But uh, for the rest of it, everybody knows. The president gives out money to companies, as you pointed out in your introduction, the companies that appreciate him the most are the ones that are going to get the money. And if you didn't appreciate him enough, and especially if you didn't appreciate him enough to support his re-election campaign, uh, you know, what makes you think you're getting any money? I mean, that's how it looks to me anyway. Hey, look, we always wanted public-funded fu- public campaigns. Now we're getting them, Eileen. <laughs> so uh, is, when, oh it comes to that, when it comes to that oversight, that lack of oversight, that slush fund, as you call it, of Mnuchin's, how likely do you think that is going to be addressed in phase four of the stimulus package that they're working on already? And a lot of the, a lot of the, uh, the crit, uh, critiques that you have are about insufficient funding. Do you think that insufficient funding is something that can be addressed more easily in phase yes. four? Because at least yes. they're already accepting the problem. So the slush fund is the slush fund. It's not going away. Uh, the the exception, I have to say, is there was a carve out for the airlines, which wanted to be part of that very that very same slush fund. But uh, as you know, the airline attendants have a very powerful union with a leader who is you know just par excellence, and uh, they managed to have a. It's true the airlines are getting a bailout, but. They must keep their workers on the payroll. They must uh, not give themselves uh, – they can't use the first stock buybacks to pay dividends. They got all kinds of protections for workers and for uh, the taxpayer money into the money that's going to the airlines. The rest of it has nothing like that. It has a requirement that you will keep your workers employed to the best of your ability. You will say that you're not going to do these other things unless the Treasury Secretary Mnuchin says, mm, it's okay, you can do stock buybacks. So uh, uh, it is possible to have oversight. And if you have a union, it turns out that they are strong enough to actually affect how the federal government spends taxpayer money so that it benefits workers and taxpayers. So I think that's worth pointing out. But yes, there's lots of problems uh, in terms of not enough money. Uh, There's not, and and I do also want to get back to saving lives. There's not enough happening there either. But on the not enough money front, I think that uh, your listeners have probably already heard, if you file taxes with the IRS in 2018 or 2019, you will get an automatic check of $1,200 if you're an adult, plus $500 for, uh, your, uh, for children under the age of 17. Uh, so uh, that is going to come to you automatically. You don't have to apply for it. If you've, if you've changed, you better have a, a forwarding address on your, uh, from, from the post office or inform the IRS that you have a different address. 
but in any case, that money is coming. Well, that's a one-time shot in the arm. We did talk about the unemployment insurance, but that's going to be weeks. The, 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 uh, uh, the, the, the State Departments of Labor are just overwhelmed by phone calls and people applying on the web. It's going to take them a while to be able to sort that out. And then for you to actually get uh, in Pennsylvania, you need a PIN number in order to get your money. You have to wait for them to send you your PIN number. And then once you apply for it, it takes a few weeks for it to get to you. So we're talking about money coming through the unemployment insurance system in May or June. What are people supposed to do in the meantime? And so that $1,200, they're going to start giving it out on April 6th. And so in the, in the three weeks from that time, many, many people will get this money. But that's a one-shot-in-the-arm thing. That is not going to sustain you, and people are going to need more of that kind of um, money coming to them that they can immediately use to pay bills, to pay their rent, to put food on the table. Now, there are many, many people excluded from that. Uh, certainly, any child over the age of 17 is excluded. Uh, college students, if they're taken as dependents uh, on their parents' uh, income tax form, even if they themselves are employed and even if they themselves have lost that job, uh, are not eligible for the $1,200. Uh, so there's those folks. There are uh, all of uh, the immigrant population, both uh, legal and illegal. Uh, immigrants who are here legally and have an ability to work often do not have a Social Security number. They have a different kind of employment number, but only people with a Social Security number are eligible. So even legal immigrants with a right to work will not get the $1,200 and the 500 for their children. Uh, immigrants who are not here legally or do not have a right to work, they are not getting the money. And then people who are so poor uh, and have nothing to declare, get get nothing from the government, have nothing to declare, uh, and so they don't file income taxes. They are getting nothing. Uh, and estimates are that there are that these are not my estimates. They come from the Institute on Taxation and Economic Policy, uh, but they estimate that there are 5.6 million adults and 2.8 million children who are left out of this, and these people are the poorest of the poor and nothing coming to them. So this, the, these kinds of gaps are what we are already working on for the fourth coronavirus response bill, trying, trying to fill those gaps, trying to make sure people have enough money, trying to make sure the food is actually getting to people. Uh, the, the other big thing is, so, uh, you know, uh, something like uh, uh, this, this flush fund, uh, uh, fund for these um, slush fund for these big businesses, the childcare industry it's very fragile, and the childcare infrastructure is going to collapse in this country if we don't do something. They the estimates are that and and the request was for fifty billion dollars for them. They got three point five billion. Give me a break. We will not have a childcare industry. You, you'll be ready to go back to work, and there'd be no place to put your kids if they're young uh, and need care. Uh, and all of the people who are essential workers right now, whose children need to be in childcare, uh, there's not going to be a place for them. So that that's a huge emergency that uh, that needs to be dealt with uh, dealt with very quickly. So uh, the other big hole is in state and local government budgets. State and local governments are funded out of sales tax revenue and other local tax revenues. Well, nobody's buying anything. We're all sitting in our houses. Uh, and so sales tax revenue is way down. And if we don't fill that hole, then just at this moment when we need state and local government services the most, state and local governments are going to have to lay off workers and cut services because they just don't have the money to supply them. And so there is uh, money in the in the bill for them. There's $150 billion dollars. And there's some extra little bits of money for education and for transportation, but they probably need on the order of 250 billion, not 150 billion. So getting them another 100 billion going forward uh, in the next uh, round, so that they are not laying off workers and they are not cutting uh, public services, is really essential. So we we have those kinds of of holes to fix as well.
How damaging could this be to the private health insurance industry when it comes to the testing and treatment of COVID-19? The stimulus package only insists private insurers cover testing but not treatment or vaccine. You believe they should also cover treatment and the vaccine. Could the amount of coverage that uh, private insurers have to give to private citizens, could that eventually bankrupt the private insurance industry? And should we be trying to protect that industry? Well, we have big, there are many, many big problems around the insurance industry. So one of them um, is the fact that when we say, when we say that the insurance companies should cover it, if you have insurance, they will cover it up to the limits of what's in your policy. And what we would like to see is the federal government pick up your copay, pick up your deductible, pick up your coinsurance that you as an individual should not have to pay anything. Nobody is asking the insurance companies to pay for those things. We're asking the government to pay for those things. And then for all of the people who have no insurance, which as you know, are millions and millions in this country, uh, the government should simply pay for their, for their uh, care. Who's gonna go get tested, find out that they have it, so the hospital wants to put you in the hospital right away, and you know that you have no way ever to pay that back. How's, how's that working? So you can be sure that people will avoid testing even when it's available unless they are desperately ill uh, because they can't afford the care. So what we want, and hopefully this will be in the fourth bill, is that for people who don't have insurance, the government will pick up the tab. And for people who do have insurance, the government will pick up all of the out-of-pocket costs that people would have. The insurance companies are being required already in the bill that passed to uh, cover the vaccine if it ever becomes available. So testing and vaccines should not cost a person with insurance anything. But if you go into the hospital, and, and think about it, Everybody who is either self has bought their own insurance privately or is insured through the Obama exchange has probably taken a bronze plan because that's the most affordable. Well, those bronze plans have huge deductibles. Uh, And so, you know, you're going to be out thousands and thousands of dollars, even if you have insurance, unless the government covers the deductibles, covers the co-pays, covers the co-insurance. And we're working on getting that into the fourth bill as well. Does this prove, does this amount of stimulus that the government was able to come up with, does this prove that ideas like austerity and our inability to pay for universal health care or pay for in-state tuition or for college students or to forgive student loans, does this stimulus package prove that all of those things were all a, a fake, a hoax, because we could have paid for all of this the entire time? So the, the short answer is yes. Uh, and we actually, we actually learned that when the President Trump uh, had that huge tax cut for the wealthy in this country and drove up the debt and the deficit and no bad things happened. Inflation didn't come around. Interest rates didn't go through the roof. In fact, they were quite low even before the pandemic. So, yes, we knew it from that. And, yes, we can see it from this. And I will say that there are now many more economists coming around to this view. I mean, economist models had always said if you increase the deficit, you increase the debt, interest rates will rise, inflation will rise, and on balance we're going to have terrible problems. They weren't right then, and we've known – the thing is we've known how to deal with inflation ever since Keynes uh, uh, wrote the general theory. Keynes was the great economist who we named Keynesian economics, and he said we can have fiscal policy when the economy is slow uh, up until the time that you see inflation. And when you see inflation, we know how to bring inflation under control. We do. So let's not worry about it. The modern monetary theory folks have been out there saying the constraint on what we can spend is not the amount of money that the government has in taxes, but the amount of resources that the country has that can be deployed. So the short answer is, and as we see in many, many other capitalist countries, it is possible to have free college. It is possible to have a universal health system, although, of course, uh, the taxes do go towards some of that, but taxes are not the limit on, on how much you can do. So the short answer is yes, we can spend lots more money on lots of things that are important to people. Uh, the longer answer is 
Well, we didn't have these things from the get-go. These things were adopted in other countries on a rolling basis. They didn't put everything in place at once. So the criticism from the left of modern monetary theory are criticisms that assume that every good thing that all of us want, a Green New Deal, uh, universal health care that is a government-sponsored program, paid family and medical leave that is a government-sponsored program, uh, forgiveness of student debt, that all of these things that we want, we can have them, but we can't have them all at once. And I will say, I myself am not too worried that our Congress is going to enact all of these things all at once. But we do need to say which are the most important and let's start making progress on them. Which are the things that are most affordable? Which are the things that will give us the biggest boost? Your point about climate change, I mean, the same people who denied climate change and the same thing that happened to the scientists who put out the evidence in which they were harassed and in in every way – you know, uh, had their names dragged through the mud by people who said, oh, they're, it's just a hoax. They're trying to enrich China. They're on the payroll of China. They want to see the U.S. economy tank. Well, isn't that what we're saying about all the epidemiologists and medical doctors who understand what the pandemic is? The, the same deniers. And so uh, we, we need to be able to, to begin making serious progress on climate change, just as we are now beginning to make serious progress on the pandemic. I, I want to come back to one thing about the serious progress, however, and that is my first priority when I think about it is what do we need to do to save lives? And there is money in this bill for expanding um, Medicaid, for giving money to hospitals, which are going to be in serious trouble because they can't carry out their normal business. There is money for things like that. But what we really need that is not happening is the president is the only one with the ability to invoke the Defense Production Act, which he has invoked but has not really applied, uh, to make sure that 3M and the other companies like 3M that can be making these N95 uh, masks that protect uh, healthcare workers and uh, grocery store workers, protect all the people who have to be out there interacting with the public and maybe interacting with sick people from getting the illness themselves. We need to invoke it. We need to say you will produce it. You will teach other companies how they can produce it, and we are going to be making masks by the millions He did not do that. He still hasn't done that. The protective gear that people need in hospitals to wear, the ventilators, which we're finally making some progress on. The thing about the Defense Production Act is that the president can set priorities and he can say to an industry, this is what you will produce. Here's how many we are going to buy so you know that it's worth gearing up because we're going to buy thousands and thousands of these. And here is what we're going to pay. We're not asking them to do it for free, but we're saying, no, you can't set the price. So, of course, what happens is you don't have a government uh, directive to 3M. And I'm not picking out 3M by itself. 3M is an example of similar companies that could be producing gear that we need, uh, protective gear that we need. Uh, The president has not ordered them to do it, so they're producing however much of it they want. And because the the president hasn't ordered them to produce it and hasn't taken command or had had the appropriate agencies take command of distributing this gear and these masks and these respirator things and these ventilators where they're most needed, What you have is a competition among states and among hospitals to get this, driving up the price and making excess profits for the companies that produce it. Not only are they not just getting a fair price for it, they're making excess profits because the president will not tell them, here's what you're making, here's what we're paying, and here's where you're sending it. Uh, And so the gear and the ventilators are going to those localities and those hospitals that have the most to spend, not the ones that have the sickest patients. This is crazy. I'm telling you that thousands of people will die unnecessarily because of this. And if this is not the same thing as killing somebody in the middle of Fifth Avenue and getting away with it, I don't know what is. 
And we should all, you know, uh, hats off to the GE workers who walked off yesterday who insisted that they be building ventilators and not doing what they were doing at their jobs. So that was a really amazing action by them. One last question for you, Eileen. We've been speaking with economist Eileen Applebaum, co-author of the Center for Economic Policy and Research Report, The U.S. Response to COVID-19. You can find that report at CEPR.net. And you can follow Eileen on Twitter at Eileen Applebaum. As we do with all of our guests, our final question is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. Yesterday, CNBC reported economists at the Fed's St. Louis District Project or project total employment reductions of 47 million, which would translate to a 32.1% unemployment rate, according to a recent analysis of how bad things could get. Can we, to what degree, Eileen, can we stimulus our way out of 32% unemployment? So I, I tell you one of the most important things is, is not just the stimulus, but uh, keeping people attached to their jobs, making sure that they stay on the payroll uh, even if they're not actually at work. Uh, and we certainly have provisions for this uh, and for small for businesses with 500 or fewer employees uh, can get a loan to, to make, make payroll. And if you do make payroll, you can also pay your rent and your utilities out of it. And if you keep those employees through the next four months, the government will forgive the loan. It won't cost you anything. But what we know from other from the recovery right now in China is that if the workers stay attached to their employer, that as the pandemic passes, these companies can ramp up quickly and uh, get back up to speed in some reasonable period of time. You have what's called a V-shaped recovery. We went down really fast. We come back really fast. If we don't do that, if companies let their workers go, if workers are busy looking for other jobs and companies have to go find employees and uh, retrain them and make a decision about whether they want to have employees and whether they want to reopen, uh, then we may end up with a U-shaped recovery, which means it takes a lot longer to, uh, to get back to normal stimulus or no stimulus. Or we could turn into a country that has a backward L. We're, we're down at the bottom for a very long time. So one of the important things is for uh, companies to be required to hold on to workers, which we did for the, for the smaller companies with 500 or fewer. But that slush fund, 500 to 10,000 employees, no such requirement. A good faith effort they're supposed to make to do it, but no such requirement. Uh, and then the second thing is, uh, yes, we do know how to stimulate our way back. We are going to have to be careful about priorities. We've needed infrastructure investment forever. We've needed uh, a Green New Deal forever. Uh, coming out of this pandemic would be a really good time to begin working on those two fronts to make sure that, in fact, uh, all of these millions of workers who are losing their jobs will have jobs to come back to. Eileen, thank you so much for being back on our show. This is Eileen's third appearance on This Is Hell. You can hear our past interviews with her by searching on her name, Applebaum, at thisishell.com. Thank you so much for being back on our show. Yeah, thank you so much for the opportunity. And I you, really appreciate you know, talking to you. I'm going to annoy the hell out of you in the future to get you back on the show to give us some more <laughs> progress on this, maybe as phase four gets finished. So thank you so much. Okay, my pleasure. Money is the root of all evil. And capitalism is all about money, so you do the math. This is how this week's question from is, what are you wiping down? What are you wiping down? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question wins five This Is Hell advertising stickers so you too can subvert outdoor advertising with the words, this is hell. As we are all living in hell right now, what better time to remind others that yes, this is hell. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. You can tweet it to us at This Is Hell Radio or email it to us at Chuck at This Is Hell.com or Alex at This Is Hell.com. Alex, do you want to tell any of the answers to this week's question mail now or do you want to just do that tomorrow? Yeah, let's go. Uh, what are you wiping down? What are you wiping down? Stephen S. says, self-checkouts after every customer. <laughs> Arnell says, my two-meter-long social distance-approved sex toys. Ugh. Okay. Lisa C. says, my core values. <laughs> That's good. Who said that? Uh, Lisa C. <laughs> Chris L. says, my ass. I mean, your ass. No, wait. My ass. Adam A. says, imaginary boxes in the middle of the sidewalk to see if filter mask hoarding paranoids either instinctively avoid them or attempt prying them open to see if there's a stash of TP therein. 
MGB says, absolutely nothing. I'm building up my immunity. That's how it works, right? <laughs> yes, that's exactly how it works. Uh, Max I says, Devo. <laughs> what you wiping down? What you wiping down? Walter M says, Donald Trump's face so we can see how deathly white he actually is. Adam K says, the inside of my lungs don't want to contaminate the ventilator I'll be sharing with 10 other people in a few weeks. <laughs> it's going to be like a hookah. Wally R. <laughs> <laughs> Wally R says, I'm not wiping down. I've always been instructed to wipe from front to back. Oh, jeez. Oh, Jesus. What are you wiping down? What are you wiping down? Joe G says, my teaching contract that my university just <laughs> spat all over. <laughs> Nick A says, all of my children. Complete series DVD. Dan, uh, Dan T says, I'm too sexy for cleaning wipes. Too sexy for my cleaning wipes. Wow. Figgy N says, I'm wiping down the door handles of cop cars with LSD as they look bored with the crime rate going down during this quarantine. <laughs> Dan T says, I would be wiping down my hash pipe, but my connection has fallen off the grid. Apparently the Rona got him. Who has a hash connection? <laughs> what the hell? Dan T, I'm sending, hold on, let me send him a message. <laughs> exactly. Just one second. Uh, Josh L says, my laminated certificate that says I'm an essential worker. <laughs> and finally, Garrett S says... My smooth brain. I want to get a t-shirt that says essential worker on it. So when I walk up and down the street, cops won't bug me. Or maybe a yellow vest. A yellow vest that says essential worker on it. Uh, and uh, so everybody saw that, you know, Amazon workers went on strike yesterday because they don't have masks. They don't have gloves. They don't have sanitizer. Yeah, so those Amazon packages in your front stoop that somebody might be stealing from you. Uh, they can have them and the coronavirus that came with them. Alex, who's on tomorrow's Wednesday's live one-hour stream beginning at 10 in the morning, just like today's show? Andrew Liu will be on to talk about his N plus one piece, Chinese Virus World Market. The best safeguard against the novel coronavirus is the ability to voluntarily withdraw oneself from capitalism. <laughs> I think we've done that, haven't we, in a way? Uh, if you want to look at my bottom line. It's been 24 years. <laughs> exactly. Tune in to tomorrow's live streaming show at 10 a.m. Chicago time here at thisishell.com or listen to the podcast posted shortly after our live stream. To hear more of the answers to this week's question mail and our guest and whatever the hell else is going on in tomorrow's show, I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. Thanks to Alex for producing. Thanks to Eileen Applebaum, today's guest, your eyewitness to grief. This is hell. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>